All right, shall we get started? Welcome. Uh, so, uh, I'm Tom, and you guys are stuck with me for the next 14 weeks. So this is uh, Anatomy 1, Biology 1001. It's, uh, I, it's my understanding that this is your first class altogether in this program. That's exciting. <laughs> All right, how's everybody feeling? Good, mixed emotions? <laughs> I get a lot of that, that's okay. All right. Got a lot of, uh, as people trickled in, a lot of the usual questions. Uh, how hard is this class? Does everybody survive? Those kinds of things. Um, we'll go over the, the syllabus today, uh, some basics, um, try to get you acquainted to the class, and then we're going to get right going into the, into the first unit. But let's get a handle on what it is that we're dealing with in this class first. Okay? This is obviously <coughs> a foundations class. I mean, <coughs> anatomy is the absolute foundation of, of your understanding of anything medical. Right? You have to understand what the body is, what makes it up, and then how it works. So anatomy is, is, the, is the structure and physiology is the function. They go hand in hand. You can't separate one from the other, so we teach them together. Um, one of the questions I got earlier was actually interesting. It was, um, so the anatomy and physiology introductory concepts is the name of the class, right? It really should just be called AMP1, because um, the question was kind of basically, is this one easier than anatomy advanced, which is your anatomy two class, right? Biology 1002. And I can speak to that because I will teach you that class as well. Uh, it's not necessarily any easier or harder. It's not that this class is like we spoon feed you and then we get make it harder next time. It's basically there's a section of this where it's assumed that everybody's starting on the same level playing field where you got basic introduction to how the body's organized and then we build our way up. So we start with the small, we start with basically chemistry and then work our way into cells and then tissues and then organs and then after that it's basically moving forward with what's called a systems approach to the body. So basically, it's the most standard way you learn anatomy. You go through the body system by system by system by system. So you talk about skin or the nervous system or the endocrine system or the uh, musculoskeletal system or whatever it is that we pick, and you work your way through that way. So um, AMP2 is no harder. It's just a continuation. It's just the systems that we haven't covered yet in this class, if that makes sense. Okay. So, uh, again, you are, we're always here on Tuesdays, 6 to 9, uh, in this room for the next 14 weeks. Uh, that's me right there. I am um, part-time faculty, so I don't and will not ever have an office here. That's fine. That doesn't mean we can't meet if we don't have to, but uh, communication is best by email. Okay, so that's my email right in the front page, first page right there. Make sure you have it somewhere. Thomas. Dot, yeah. You may need to sit closer then. I can do that, but if you continue to not be able to see stuff, then, then you might need to move closer. Um, so Thomas.lily at GeorgianCollege.ca. You should also you should have this document, right? It's on it's on Blackboard. Okay, um, it's on there for sure. Uh, anyway, thomas.lily at georgiancollege.ca is uh, the best way to get a hold of me. Uh, email me whatever your questions are, whether it's you know, um, course-related, content-related, uh, whatever. Uh, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Um, if you don't hear back from me immediately, don't worry. I'm not ignoring you. It'll come. Um, but uh, that is my legal name, Thomas. Nobody calls me Thomas, not even my mother, so don't. 
Okay, I go by Tom with an H because I'm weird, uh, but uh, don't call me Thomas. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so really, really briefly about me. This is not about me. Um, I am practicing chiropractor. Um, my background is in kinesiology undergrad, and my master's is in nutrition. Uh, I've been teaching this class, patho, sorry, uh, anatomy two, patho one, and patho two for about six years here now. So pretty good handle on how these things usually go. Um, every group is different. Um, I hope you guys are a good group. I hope you have fun together and learn well together. Um, <clears throat> but approximately each class goes about the same. So <coughs> let's kind of go through the flow <coughs> of, uh, of what's involved here. First of all, <coughs> this is your textbook, okay? Uh, McKinley's third edition. Um, it's a good book. Although it's, uh, it's somewhat new to this program, which is why I haven't posted all of your notes to Blackboard yet, because I'm still working on changing them a little bit from what I used to use. So <coughs> let's talk about Blackboard really briefly. If this is your first time or you haven't done it in a long time, introduction to Blackboard, it's important that you get acquainted with it because you'll use it for everything. Okay? <coughs> so <coughs> mine will look slightly different than yours. But more or less, this is what it's going to look like. You're going to go into the shelf for our class. And then on the left, you're going to have some headings. Um, the important ones for us right away uh, are announcements, which is kind of usually the main page. Um, this is how I'll communicate with you. Uh, if I need to communicate with all of you, uh, I'll send an announcement on Blackboard, but then copy it so you should get it immediately in your email. Okay? But make sure that you check your Georgian College email regularly, because that is how we will communicate outside of the room. Uh, don't even bother sending me emails from any other email addresses because I won't answer them. Okay, so it's, yeah, all communication, it's a college-wide policy, has to be from your, your Georgian email. Okay, <coughs> so announcements, everything will be on there. As a side note, um, I will post at least one announcement every week because uh, I record all of our lectures and I'll, I'll publish it as a podcast so that uh, you can listen to it later on to go over concepts again. If sometimes I'm talking too fast or you just want to review or you just want to torture yourself in the car and listen to me again, you can do all those things um, at home. <coughs> so I'll post the link every week with an announcement. Um, <coughs> course information, that's an important one. That's where you find your syllabus, which is the document we're going over right now. Uh, so make sure you download that and keep it. And also make sure you download and keep the course outline. Um, this is the, pretty much the only chance you'll get to get it. Um, I'll, I post it for you, and then it's really hard to obtain afterwards. Uh, but you're supposed to keep those things for your records going forward for when you do your licensure and all that stuff. So keep those tucked away somewhere. Uh, <clears throat> assignments. You will get assignments posted in here at some point. Okay, we're doing some online tests in this class. You'll do all that through Blackboard, so there won't be anything here yet but I'll show you what that'll look like eventually. Um, and then you can go, of course, to your grades. You can see what's, uh, you know, updates on, on, on uh, where you're at in this class. And the other really important one is weekly learning. So under weekly learning, uh, that's where I'll post the lecture slides. So everything, the, the PowerPoint slides that we're going over in class, you have access to on Blackboard. So the most typical suggested way to go through this class is bring the notes to class with you. All right. Um, however you choose to do that, if you want to bring your laptop and, and do your notes on your, on your laptop, that's cool. Um, 
lots of people prefer to print them out, say three to a page, and you can write your notes in, this, in the margins. That's fine too. Some combination of them, however, whatever works for you, it's all good. Okay, but definitely bring some copy of your notes to class. Okay, so for now, uh, because I'm still working on uh, changing the notes from what I previously had, uh, the first six units are posted here. Um, you'll have the rest of the notes well in advance of the classes that you need them for. Just keep checking back. All right. Okay. <clears throat> so, uh, like I said, um, the, because this is an intro class, we do start with today's lecture will be about organization of the body. Uh, into next week, we basically, again, start small and then build up to bigger and bigger stuff. So we'll start with some chemistry next week, move into the cell, general cell uh, structures and functions. Uh, we tack on a little unit on microbiology, so other living things that are not human cells. Uh, and then we get into bigger and bigger uh, tissues. So we put cells together to make tissues, and then we put tissues together to make organs. So from there on, it's what I said is called a systems approach. So we go by organ system by organ system through the body. So the ones that we're covering in this class are the integumentary system, which is hair, skin, and nails, <clears throat> skeletal system, skeleton, joints, muscular system, nervous system, and that's by far the biggest unit. It's uh, four weeks worth of lectures because there's a lot going on. Uh, and then we'll follow up with special senses, so that's um, vision and hearing and balance. And then lastly is the endocrine system. And you are taking uh, anatomy two next semester? Okay, so it'll basically be exact same format, roll straight into whatever the next systems are. So you know, respiratory and digestive and reproductive and all those things. Okay, now, <coughs> um, most typical question right off the top is testing. So let's get that out of the way. The way that this class works, testing-wise, is 70% of the, of the course is devoted to tests, and that means unit tests and online quizzes, and 30% of the class has to be a cumulative, comprehensive final exam. So let's talk about the unit tests first. <clears throat> okay, there are four of them. <laughs> Three of them are the exact same format, one has a little bit of a twist to it. So <clears throat> the approximate format of those tests, when you have them, uh, they're each worth 15%. <clears throat> You're going to come, it's on the schedule when they are, so the first one is on week 4, January 28th. <coughs> Excuse me. All, on, all of our testing days, make sure you're here on time because the test starts at the beginning of class. So it'll start at 6 o'clock. They're one hour long. They are about 50 multiple choice questions. Um, some of that might include true or false, matching, diagram stuff, but you're not going to find short answer, long answer, essay, fill in the blank, anything like that on any of your unit tests. With one exception, uh, we'll get to that. Okay? Um, <clears throat> but the rest of them is, uh, are they're structured in that way. Um, I, <laughs> as much as I understand, especially if it's your first go around or if you haven't been in school a while or whatever the case is, uh, that's, uh, that tests can be stressful, okay? My view on tests is they're not meant to be punitive, okay? They're not supposed to be punishment. I understand they feel that way. I've sat where you sat for a long time. 
they can be challenging, but they're supposed to be a learning experience. So I always make sure that we review our tests afterwards. So as long as time allows, we'll review your previously completed tests the week after. So you don't get to keep them, but you get to look at them briefly while we go through all the questions. You can see where you did well, where you maybe made some mistakes, and where you can improve upon. Uh, you can ask questions if you need clarification on concepts. It's supposed to be about learning. Okay. That also being said, um, the final exam, remember, is cumulative. So we'll get to what that means uh, in a second. But you will see some of that information again at the end of the semester. Okay? Unfortunately, you need to learn and retain anatomy because you're going to use it all the time. <clears throat> okay, so uh, tests, uh, the unit four unit tests are basically that structure. Um, that also being said, uh, we there's a lot of information to cover in this class, as you may have noticed. Uh, that means that we do have lecture after tests on test days. So if you finish your exam, your test in half an hour, cool, give it to me. Go have a coffee or whatever. Come back at seven o'clock. So on test days, we'll start a lecture at seven, and we'll go through till till nine o'clock. Um, the exception to that show up one hour fifty multiple choice questions is uh, test number three. So on March tenth, week ten, uh, that one is a little bit different. So there is. A, uh, there is a multiple choice section. It's not quite as long. It's not 50 questions. Uh, but there is also a practical component to that one. So that is about our musculoskeletal stuff. So that's about the skeletal system, muscular system, and joints. And when we go through that stuff in class, we're going to be using models. We're going to be using some real and some plastic bones and joints and muscles and things like that. You're going to have your hands on. They're going to be on your desk in front of you. We're going to learn them together. Uh, and then uh, when you show up for the testing day, we're going to have a bell ringer test. Which basically means that you show up, you don't come in the room. Uh, we're going to all come in together. You're going to stand in front of a station and on all the tables throughout the classroom, there's going to be something on the desk in front of you with a label. So the, there's going to be a question that says, what is this bone? Or where is this arrow pointing at? Or something like that. Uh, you're going to get basically a minute at the station. A bell will ring, and you'll move clockwise or whatever it ends up being to the next station, around and around and around for about 30 stations or so. Okay, So that's the only hands-on, the only practical, the only thing in here that really is not multiple choice testing other than the online quiz. Um, it does stress people, the concept of it stresses people out, I get that, but almost everyone after they finish says it's a really good learning experience. So we'll talk more about that later, um, and, uh, and don't let it stress you out too much yet. Okay? <clears throat> final exam. Uh, so final exam is obviously week 15, April 14th. Uh, basically, the structure of the final exam will be twice as long as the unit tests. So it'll be, again, at the beginning of the you know, 6 o'clock. It'll be two hours long, and it'll probably be 100 multiple choice questions. That's it. Okay. Um, the exam has to be cumulative, comprehensive, which means that uh, it has to include information from the entire semester. So usually, the breakdown of that test uh, is about 50 questions, uh, material that you have not been tested on yet, which means special senses and endocrine system, and about 50 questions on material that you have seen before, so from the previous units. 
and everything is fair game that we cover all semester. I know it's a lot, but body's complicated. Okay. So um, that being said, I promise you that on the cumulative questions, I will not dig up from the depths of the most obscure material in the old units. I will be asking you stuff that's big picture ideas, stuff that you definitely should have taken home from the previous units. Okay. Um, <laughs> again, around the tests, because they freak people out. Uh, consistently, in all my classes, people say that the tests are fair. Okay, so I don't ask you trick questions. I don't need to. There's more than enough information in this class that I'm more than happy to just test you, see whether you know the information or not. If you look at a question on a test and you think to yourself, is he trying to trick me? The answer is no. It means take a breath and read it again and and don't you know don't get don't dig too deep into into that line of thinking because I'm not trying to trick you. I don't need to. Okay? Uh, the last bit of the testing stuff is the online quizzes. So <laughs> the online quizzes make up 10% of your overall grade. So there will be five of them at 2% each. So let's talk about when those are. Okay, they're in bold again on your syllabus. So you have one due uh, week three, five, seven, 11, and 14. So those are obviously a little bit different. They're online. <coughs> they will all be through Blackboard. So it'll be under the, I believe, assignments section. It won't populate until they're available. And I'll tell you what that means and when that'll be. Uh, <coughs> but they'll show up when they're available. And you can click on it. And it's all done through Blackboard. So make sure that you have a good internet connection wherever you're doing it. Um, because you get one shot at it. So. Um, uh, before the due date, <clears throat> you get one attempt to do your online quiz, uh, and you get once you open it, you get 60 minutes to complete it. So you have to finish it within the hour after you start. Um, it will probably be somewhere between 10 and 20 questions per quiz. On the online quizzes, there will probably be some multiple choice questions, but there will also be some maybe true and false stuff, some simple kind of one word or two word fill in the blanks, uh, um, some matching, things like that that we don't often get to in the multiple choice setting. Okay, So being that it's online, uh, it's obviously open book. Right? I encourage you to use all the resources that you have available to you. The questions will be coming from the notes, right? the stuff that we cover in your PowerPoint slides and the stuff that we talk about in class. Uh, so definitely, you know, don't go in cold. Brush up on your notes before you take the test. Uh, and uh, it, people find it's a good opportunity to, to uh, boost their, their marks a little bit. That you can also you know, feel free to collaborate, work together, work in pairs, small groups. It's all good with me. It doesn't matter. However you prefer to learn and test, it's totally fine. Uh, just keep in mind that once you start it, you have an hour, one chance. OK? Sure, that's a good question, sorry. Um, so uh, let's say uh, you have a, a quiz due on week three. So we have a class on Tuesday the 21st. Um, the test will become available as soon as class ends next week. So it will become available at 9 p.m. on January 14th. It'll automatically pop into your, into your Blackboard and be available. Uh, and it will it'll close basically at midnight the 21st. So, uh, the end of the day on January 20th. 
So 11.59, January, the day before we have class again, it'll close. If you haven't finished it, you haven't finished it. Okay? So um, you basically have just about a week to complete each test. Make sense? Okay. Um, <clears throat> so the, the, let's talk a little bit more about the textbook again. So um, this is a good textbook, Kinley's. Um, the corresponding chapters are on the right here, so it tells you which chapter goes with, uh, with which unit. Um, assigned reading. So assigned reading basically means that is the chapter that corresponds with the unit that we're going to talk about. It does not necessarily mean that I want you to read all of chapter one. When I test you, the material for the test comes from our class notes and our discussions in class. I will not test you on anything that's in the textbook that we don't cover in the notes or in class. Okay? Understood? So, excellent resource, but not required, not strictly speaking, to pass the class. Okay? I definitely suggest you have an anatomy book. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's important to have a, an anatomy textbook, and this one is a good one. Uh, great online resources and some other stuff that can be really helpful. Um, if you want to go home and, and you want to get the information that we've covered in a different voice, right, in a different context, a little more detail maybe, um, then it's great. Use the corresponding chapter to review it. But I will not ask you stuff that doesn't show up in our notes or that we've added to it in lecture discussions. Okay? Fair? Okay. Yeah. All right, and um, the only exception to that is microbiology. <clears throat> so the microbiology doesn't really have a full uh, a full chapter in here. There's a small section on it. It's not it's not great. Okay, the microbiology notes that we use for our class actually uh, I've pulled from uh, from our pathology or pathophysiology textbook that you'll eventually end up using. So uh, you'll see it again. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned earlier uh, to people that were here earlier, um, how it typically works, unless something dramatic changes, like a fire or something, I don't know, uh, is that I will probably, you'll probably be stuck with me four times. So I'll teach you usually anatomy one, anatomy two, patho one, and patho two. I'm not sure how exactly that, that spreads out when we're going to be doing those, but, but uh, you may as well get used to this because you're going to see a bunch of it. So sorry. All right. Uh, on the so before tests. Um, oh, sorry. Um, at the beginning of, of, of a bunch of classes, not every class, especially test days, but at the beginning of a number of classes. Uh, when you get here, one of the first things we'll probably do is um, a little online quiz. Um, so if you've heard of it before, it's called Kahoot. Basically, it's a web-based uh, quiz game that you use a computer or a uh, or a phone to to put a pin in and log in. You can you put your name in. You can be anonymous if you want to. It doesn't matter. It's not for real points. It's just to test yourself. We usually do about five or six questions on the previous week's material, so you can kind of test yourself and see where you're at as far as what you learned the previous week and feel confident, or you know, say maybe you need to go back and, and study a little bit more. Okay, so you'll probably see one of those next week. Not worth anything, but good for review. Um, other than that, we don't typically do uh, exam reviews, as in we have an exam next week, here's a piece of paper with all these you know, terms that you need to know. Um, anything that's in the notes and in our discussions is testable on, in a test. So 
Um, I don't get in the habit of doing an exam review. I, I want you to learn the material. Uh, the exception to that is the very last week we'll do a full, uh, you know, full semester exam review, but even that is more of a game as opposed to a sheet with study this, this, and that for next week's exam. Okay, speaking of studying, <laughs> so I know this is getting long, but it's your first class. So um, <clears throat> studying uh, for this class in particular, but any class, I mean, this class has a lot of material in it. Um, the best thing I can tell you is don't, don't get behind, okay? Don't let it, don't let it, uh, don't let it snowball. So um, the number one best thing you can do is, and the minority of people do this, but the ones that do, do really well, Look at the notes before you come to class. So you, I don't expect you to be to know 100% of the material before you come in. Then I'm out of a job. All right. The point is to at least un, have a general good idea of what it is that you are learning about this week, so that when we learn in class, we're filling in gaps as opposed to blank slates to learn everything fresh from from scratch. Okay. If you look through the notes and you're like, I don't know what the hell that means, that's fine too. Okay? But I at least like you to have an idea of what uh, you know, know what you're, what to expect in that day. Okay, um, people will throw around <coughs> numbers. Uh, you know, for every hour of lecture, you should be doing an hour of studying. Whatever, uh, it, it's it, it's going to be different for every person. I can tell you that you should expect to be doing a pretty reasonable amount of studying in this class because there's a lot of info. And if you don't have a strong anatomy background already, which a lot of you will not. That's totally fine. Um, it's uh, it's there's a learning curve, so so spend your time and don't leave it until the last minute. If you wait until the, the last minute before the test to try to cram it all in, it probably will not go the way you want it to. Okay. All uh, right. Um, it's a lot of information. Uh, check out the academic calendar at some point. So there's all the the college-wide uh, policies. Uh, what else? <coughs> Uh, the additional resource here, Unlocking Medical Terminology, um, that's a good book. Uh, if you have no background in any kind of anatomy or medical jargon at all, uh, it might be a good idea to pick that up. It would be helpful, uh, but we're going to learn everything we need to learn in class along the way. Uh, don't cheat. I'm not sure how much I need to go into that. Um, we're doing multiple choice testing. I'll be watching you test. Just be honest, respect each other. and don't. I mean, you, you, you're here for a reason. I assume you want to do a good job and you know, be thorough and thoughtful and effective in your eventual careers. So you want to learn this stuff honestly. Um, In-class behavior, um, there's policies and procedures set out for, for Georgian. Um, I try to keep it somewhat casual in here. Um, I want you guys to participate. I want you to ask questions. I want you to interact with each other. But if it gets to a point where we're just distracting each other, and that's that's not helpful. So we'll have to hopefully not have to rein it in too much. Um, other than that, it's a night class, right? Uh, so food, drink, all that's all good as long as it's not like bothering your neighbors. Uh, don't bring curry in, but fish, right? But other than that, it's it's all good. Um, laptops, phones, all that is totally fine by me as long as they're silent, as long as they're not bothering people around you. Okay. Um, obvious exception to that is during a test. Um, one hard rule during the test is if your phone goes off during a test, your mark will be zero. Okay. I think it's, it's hard, but it's fair. Let's just set that out right now and, and, and not have any problems with it. Uh, 
if you find that you're struggling in the class, if you need help, if you have questions or whatever, just don't hesitate, don't wait, don't let it get, you know, don't let, wait till you're way behind, just email me. Uh, if we can do it by correspondence and I can answer your questions, then I will absolutely do so. If we have to sit down and meet, we can do that too. We just have to book a time and we'll make it happen, okay? Uh, tests, I'm not sure, we were pretty early on, but um, <coughs> if any of you are, uh, are, uh, are accommodated, uh, send me an email so I have a heads up. Uh, but basically, um, there will be there can be accommodations made so you do tests in the testing center. But if that's the case, you're responsible for booking your own tests. Make sh absolutely sure that you give them uh, a bare minimum. There are three business days notice, or they will decline you, and it is your own fault. So uh, if that is the case, make sure that you give them all the notice they need. Outside of that, the only uh, official reason to miss a class. Is, uh, is documented medical reasons, so with a doctor's notes or a family emergency, okay? That being said, that is official college, college policy. I try to be a reasonable human being, so it's winter semester, and if uh, conditions out there are absolutely horrendous, where you're coming from, if it's from a distance, even though it's maybe not bad here, email me ASAP and we'll figure it out. Don't abuse that or we're going to have to start changing my views on that, but um, if it's uh, legitimately you can't get to class, you're going to put yourself in danger, then don't, okay? And we'll figure it out. There are ways to, to do makeup tests within the next seven days in the testing center, okay? So don't abuse it. Let's not make it a problem, but we'll try to be reasonable about it. Okay. That's about it. Uh, you guys can read the stuff on your own, the stuff about emergency evacuation, lockdown, a bunch of other resources. Uh, you have that for yourselves. Uh, if there is inclement weather and college is going to close, they will tell you by the prescribed dates on here. So uh, we're evening class, so if the college is closed down and they're not going to open for a 6 o'clock class, they will tell you. Uh, you'll get an email or it'll be on Blackboard or you get... Uh, a few different forms of correspondence from the college themselves, not from me, uh, by 3 o'clock. Okay? So if you haven't received an official email from Georgian by 3 o'clock on that day, it means, it means class is on. Okay? So like I said, if you're coming from a distance and wherever you're coming from is brutal and you're gonna, you know, it's not safe to come, then don't. Okay? I'm recording the lectures. You can get the podcast later. Uh, and and we'll we'll make things work. Okay, nothing's worth coming putting yourself in danger to come for a class. Okay, is that enough? That's more than enough. Any questions? All right, cool. Uh, well, let's uh, let's get right into some some lecture stuff. So we'll, we'll do a little bit, and then we'll do attendance after our, our first break. But let's get right into the meat of it. So unit one, intro to anatomy and organization of the body. So some basic terms first. Uh, anatomy is the form and structure of the body. So what, what makes up the body? And that means both the big things and the small things. We'll define that in a bit. Physiology is how they work. So basically, you have it how it functions. And form, so the anatomy and function, the physiology, are interrelated. You can't take them really apart. Uh, you know, the... Um, uh, form essentially follows function, right? The form, it, it, it's, it takes the shape of whatever it is it is needed to do. And so those things are very much interrelated and you can't take them apart. 
This seems a little bit out of, out of place at first, uh, scientific method, uh, but what we're doing really is, is essentially getting into the medical part of it is scientific method. That's how diagnoses work. So in any scientific method, um, what you're essentially going to do is, uh, is you're going to examine something through observation. You're going to develop a, an idea uh, to explain what it is that you're seeing. Uh, you're going to do some kind of experiment or test to test your idea, your hypothesis, uh, gathering information. And then you're going to see if that information that you've gathered supports your hypothesis, your idea, your diagnosis, uh, or if it does not, then you have to go back to the drawing board. So um, this will kind of get tied back in with another slide later, but that's effectively how diagnosis works, right? It's you, get, you gather information, right? You get a history, you get a physical exam, you get information about the case, you make up an idea of what you think it is. If you need to rule some things out, you do some tests, you do some examination, you do some uh, poking and prodding, and, and then you, ha you have that information that you gather correlate with what your idea is and what the information is telling you otherwise, and you formulate an end results, idea, diagnosis, you know, uh, uh, concept of what it is that you're looking at, especially if it's a, a disease. Um, <laughs> anatomy. So in our class, like I said, we're going to start from small and work our way to big before we move through the systems. Uh, so here, uh, small stuff, microscopic anatomy is, is stuff that you need a microscope to see, little things. Microscopy is used uh, um, a lot in, in medicine, um, especially if you're taking uh, tissue samples. So within that, cytology, right? Does anybody know uh, what the word, uh, what the root of that word, cite, comes from? Cell, good, okay. So cite means, uh, cytology is a study of cells uh, and the workings inside cells, okay? And histology is tissues. So somebody that's looking at tissue slides under a microscope that's trained to know what normal is supposed to look like and what abnormal might look like is going to be uh, evaluating tissue samples, for example. <coughs> the, we are going to do, we're not going to do microscopy work in this class, right? We're not going to use microscopes, but we will see some, uh, some small, you know, some um, uh, microscopic anatomy in theory, in pictures, in diagrams, stuff like that. So part of anatomy and understanding how physiology works is you understand within an organ system the, um, th what it looks like, the gross anatomy, and then you dive deeper and look closer and you look at the cells that make up that anatomy, the, micro, uh, the microscopic anatomy. And then that gives you a, a sense of what that tissue is exactly supposed to be doing and we start learning about physiology. Okay? We'll get back to that in a bit. Gross anatomy is, uh, is macroscopic, so the big stuff that you don't need a microscope that you can see with the naked eye. Uh, within gross anatomy, you have a bunch of different kind of um, subheadings, you got things like systemic anatomy, which is largely how this class goes. We go system by system by system. Sometimes you'll organize it into regional anatomy. We'll do a little bit of that as well, especially when we get into um, musculoskeletal stuff and limbs and quadrants and abdomen and thorax and those kinds of things. Uh, surface anatomy is basically the stuff that you can only see on the outside. Uh, so part of anatomy is learning layers. So it's learning what you're seeing and what's deep to that and what's deep to that and what's deep to that. Um, <clears throat> comparative is, is where you're comparing similarities and differences in different species. We'll touch a little bit on that kind of here and there, just stuff that's really interesting for a conversation, but that's not really the focus of our class. Uh, and then embryology. We'll briefly touch on that, um, but not, in, not much in this class. Some of that will be in uh, anatomy too, developmental stuff. 
Um, <clears throat> pathologic anatomy. So what does uh, pathology mean? <coughs> disease, right? Disease process. So I was teaching my pathophysiology class earlier today, and the first discussion we had was, well, in order to learn pathophysiology, you have to, I mean, pathophysiology by definition means disease process of physiology. So uh, what happens when the body functions go wrong and what transpires into disease process? So the, the discussion is about in order to understand patho adequately, it means you need to have a good understanding of the basic A&P first. That's why we're here. All right, so um, we want to do a good job of getting the foundations now so that you can build upon it later. Okay, you don't, if you, if you can help it, you really don't want to just skate by and struggle through this class or just barely scrape by or do the bare minimum because it does stack on top of each other. You're going to learn stuff in other classes, your clinical stuff, your exam, your physical exam classes, your patho classes that are all going to build upon the things that you're learning in here. So let's do a good job together uh, and, uh, and learn it right. Okay. Radiographic, uh, radi radiography by definition uh, refers to x-ray, but really broadly we're talking about imaging. So imaging studies, uh, I mean anatomy, uh, imaging, there's all sorts of different imaging modalities. We're going to see a few at the end of this lecture, some basic stuff, uh, but lots of different ways to look inside the body non-invasively. Uh, and so the anatomy looks different, but in order to be good at that stuff, you have to have a understanding of what the anatomy is first. So those modalities, you're talking about things like x-ray and ultrasound and CT and MRI and, and all those types of things. We'll talk about them later. Physiology. So physiology means function. So it's how those different structures are actually working and what they're doing in the body and what's normal. What is their job? How do they, how do they, make, the, how do they make things work? Okay, so you can divide that into all sorts of subdisciplines, into cardiovascular physiology uh, with the heart and blood vessels, neurophysiology, so brain, uh, spinal cord, nervous system, uh, respiratory with the lungs, reproductive physiology uh, with both male and female um, reproductive stuff, and then, as I mentioned a minute ago, pathophysiology, patho meaning disease. Uh, basically, when, when things go sideways, when things don't work as they should anymore, then we develop disease process. <coughs> okay. As I mentioned, uh, um, form and function are, uh, you can't pull them apart. They're interrelated. So the anatomy and the function are, are very much linked together, so that's why we learn them together. There's no real smart way to do one without the other. Okay, so it's important that we both learn our macro anatomy, the big stuff, gross anatomy, the micro anatomy, the cells that make up that, uh, cells and substances that make up those tissues, and then the physiology, the function of what it is that they do. If we get a good understanding of that, then everything else will be a lot easier going forward. <coughs> so here are some things that, uh, that, that, uh, that all living organisms will have in so some degree or another. Okay? Um, so all living organisms are going to have some level of organization. That includes everything from single-cell bacteria or amoeba all the way to human or whatever other uh, you know, multicellular organism. Different layers of complexity, of course, right, between a single-celled organism and a multicellular organism, but there is clear organization. Okay, you've taken a bunch of building blocks and organized them into a complex interrelated uh, functioning structure. 
You've probably heard the word metabolism before. We're going to talk about that more next week in the chemistry unit. Uh, but the metabolism is the broad term for all the sum total of all the chemical reactions that go on inside the body. Okay? So there's all sorts of chemistry going on at all times, 24 hours a day, in, uh, all throughout your body. And we're going to learn about a bunch of them in a bunch of different places. Um, two broad categories you can break metabolism up into. You have anabolism and catabolism. So anabolism is basically, you've heard of the word maybe anabolic, right? Anabolism, building up, making bigger. Taking small things and putting them together to make bigger things. Catabolism, catabolic is the opposite. So catabolic means breakdown. It means you're taking bigger structures and breaking them into smaller and smaller pieces. Okay? More or less makes sense. That's going on, all, both of those are going on uh, at the same time all throughout your body. 24 hours a day. You're always breaking stuff down and building it up and turning over tissues and um, you know, building proteins and structures and enzymes and breaking down food that you eat and breaking down old tissue and everything is, is cyclical. We our body's efficient. We recycle and reuse a lot of our resources so we don't have to keep taking it in all the time. Um, which leads to growth. Uh, basically, in order to, to grow and develop and maintain our, our body form and our function, uh, we have to obviously take in stuff from our environment. We take in oxygen, we take in food, we take in water, we take in nutrients, we take in all the things that we need to put together. So, so we, we take it in from the environment, we break it down into its component parts, and then we reassemble it and use it as necessary to build and make and do all the stuff that we need to do within the body. Okay. Now, it's a very broad statement. We'll talk about some more specifics, of course, later. Okay, <clears throat> so organisms also have to be responsive, which means that uh, they will have some ability to, uh, to detect and then react to various stimuli. So in your you know, uh, single-celled organisms or, or small uh, rudimentary organisms, that could be uh, it responds to light and it follows light, or it, uh, it responds to chemical concentrations and it moves towards or away from certain concentrated chemicals that it, it detects. In us, that's, it's a lot more complex, okay? We have whole systems in place uh, um, and receptors and regulators and, and control centers to be able to monitor what's going on in the body, uh, take that information in, figure out what to do with it, send out responses in order to, to maintain some kind of regulation uh, of, our, of our body. So this kind of leads us to the, to the next part. And one of the basic things we're going to learn about early on in this class is homeostasis. It's part of the lecture later, so we'll get into it in a little more detail. But basically, homeostasis is our body's ability to regulate a particular variable within a particular range. Right? And that's a broad statement. So let me use something more specific. Uh, let's say you have a variable that you want to control. It's body temperature, it is blood pressure, it's concentration of oxygen or carbon dioxide or potassium or sodium or uh, hydrogen or whatever it is in your blood or some kind of variable in your body. Let's pick blood pressure. Okay, so say you have a, a resting blood pressure uh, at a, a you know, whatever the value is. It doesn't really matter what the number is. But let's say you have a set point where your brain knows, your body knows that you want to maintain your blood pressure at approximately this level. And that you're going to preferably exist within a range. So there's going to be kind of a safe range above that and a safe range below that. And you're going to have normal fluctuation 
above and below that set point, uh, but it's always going to preferably come back to that set point. So it'll deviate away as is normal. There are lots and lots and lots and lots of reasons why it is absolutely normal and you want your blood pressure to go higher. And there's reasons why you might want it to go lower and it will do so back and forth all day long. But the point is that we always want to bring it back to the set point. Okay? So there are mechanisms in place <coughs> that will detect deviation away from the set point and then enact some kind of response to bring it back to where you want it. And the same applies for any chemical, any you know, temperature or, or concentration or anything it is that we're trying to regulate in the body. That's the very broad strokes of homeostasis, and we'll talk about that more later today. Um, organisms need to reproduce. Uh, that means both at the micro scale and the macro scale. So um, organisms, I mean, we, you have your body and, uh, and the, you don't just have your cells and keep the same cells for, your, for the duration of your life. Your cells are turning over all the time uh, at different rates depending on which part of the body you're talking about. Some of them are very, very rapidly. Some of them are very slowly or in some cases not at all. But the point is that many, uh, most of your cells will be broken down and replaced a little bit at a time very, very slowly over time. Okay, So we need the ability to reproduce and make new cells as necessary because cells get old. We have to replace them. That also means, as far as reproduction goes, uh, the macro scale, talking about sex cells, uh, you know, uh, gametes, sperm in, uh, in, in males and eggs in females, and our ability to uh, combine the two and make brand new organisms. Okay, so two very different things, but related in a way. This is basically how we're going to approach this class, as I said. So we go um, from uh, the smallest, simplest levels of organization, and we start layering them on top of each other until we get to uh, to the organism, the human as a whole. So we start with chemicals, right? the basic small stuff, and then we go to cells, how the chemicals work in and around the cells, then we put cells together into organized tissues, and we organize tissues together into organs, and then we take organs and we put them together into organ systems, and we put all that together when we have the organism, okay? the individual. All right. As far as organ systems go, uh, these are the ones that we'll learn. And a lot of these will look familiar from this, the list of uh, organ systems that I showed you from the syllabus. Right? It's not random that our units are pretty much in order. Integumentary system, skeletal system, muscular system, nervous system, endocrine system. Okay? Cardiovascular, lymphatic, respiratory, urinary, digestive, reproductive. That's all stuff that we will cover in anatomy too. Make sense? All right. Let's do a very, very, very uh, basic run through of the, the organ systems. Okay, this is not going to do it any real significant justice. It's just to get you kind of just get your head in the in the right headspace of what it is that, that <coughs> we're, we're made up of. Okay, so starting off with the ones that we're going to learn about in our class, integumentary system. Okay, that's our, our first organ system we learn about. Integumentary system is uh, skin, hair, and nails. What's the broad function of the integ uh, integumentary system? Protection. Good, protection. Perfect. Okay, it does some other things too. It's how we, you know, pr um, we, um, 
it's all it's protection from the outside. It's also protection to prevent some stuff from leaving the body. So if you lose a big patch of skin, for example, you're at huge risk of dehydration because you'll wick away water really quickly. That's a problem with, for example, people that have you know, burns. Um, <clears throat> but largely protection. Uh, it also is the starting point for our endogenous. What does the word endogenous mean? Genus. Genesis, creation, right? Endo, within, okay? So creation within, so production inside our own body, endogenous production of vitamin D, okay? So your skin is exposed to the sunlight, it creates the first chemical precursor for vitamin D that has to go from there to the liver to the kidneys and eventually gets activated. That's the starting point. Uh, skeletal system. So skeletal system is uh, bones and joints. Uh, this is basically our uh, our frame. Okay? It gives us support. It gives us protection. Um, it's a, it's a, a, a storage reservoir for um, important um, uh, some important chemicals, things like calcium and phosphates. Um, it's uh, it provides us our ability to be mobile and to create force. Right, the the bones of our skeleton create levers that muscles can pull on and allow us to be to to move. To locomote, okay. Um, it's also an important. Uh, bones are also important for one other really, really important thing, okay. That word there. I'm sure it's very, very small from where you're sitting. Hematopoiesis. What does that word mean? Blood cell production, right? So some of your bones, uh, um, in the marrow, in the inside, not all of them, but some of them in certain locations, uh, are is the uh, the place where all of your blood cells are born. Okay, all of your red cells, your white cells, and your platelets, so everything responsible for carrying oxygen in your body and defending your body from foreign invaders and making clots so you don't bleed out and die, all those cells are created inside your bones. A really important function. Okay, muscular system, <laughs> lots and lots of, uh, of, uh, of uh, functions there. Um, one, of course, is you know, movement, so right? it allows us to be, to be mobile. Um, it also, importantly, will generate heat, so it's part of our thermoregulation, our, our heat balance. Lots of other stuff too, you know, expression through you know, voice production and uh, um, facial expression and it's how we feed and it's how we breathe and it's how we do all sorts of things that make us human. Nervous system. Nervous system is complicated as you'll see because there's four weeks of lecture devoted to it. Uh, but it's basically one of our two communication systems in the body. Uh, does anybody know what the other one is? That's okay. Uh, our nervous system is basically our electrical communication system. So you have the central processing part, which is the brain. You have the highway, the spinal cord, and you have the peripheral nerves that travel out to all corners of the body. Okay, so it ta it sends information out and takes information in from all the parts of the body. It does so through direct electrical communication. It sends these signals called action potentials that will travel back and forth to and from the brain and spinal cord and communicates all sorts of functions in the body. Okay, really, really cool, interesting stuff. We'll learn all about it. The other communication system in the body is actually the next one here. That's our endocrine system. The endocrine system is a system that creates hormones. So hormones are chemical substances that are made in one part of the body, in a gland, and then travel through body fluids. So travel through blood and other body fluids and then we'll act on cells that recognize them in another part of the body. OK? 
Okay, so it's a slower messenger system, sometimes a very, very powerful messenger system, uh, but it travels through fluids as opposed to direct electrical communication like the nervous system. In fact, the nervous system and the endocrine system, understandably, are actually very closely linked together. The nervous system will control the endocrine system in a lot of cases. So they work together to communicate throughout the body. And the communication part is super, super, super important. When I said earlier that our body tries to maintain homeostasis, tries to take variables and regulate them, right? Our body likes things just so, right? We like our temperature and our pH and all the other concentrations just where we want them. And any deviation from that has got to be managed. Well, how you detect and eventually correct those deviations is done through those communication systems. Okay, we'll learn more about that. Um, <coughs> cardiovascular system, okay, so heart is a special kind of muscle. It pumps blood through blood vessels all throughout the body. You're sending oxygen uh, to all the cells that, that need it for their metabolism. It's taking away waste products and taking them away from the cells after they make them. Um, it's also moving uh, fresh nutrients through the body that it's picked up from the food we eat. It's picked, up, picked it up from the digestive system and traveled around the body uh, to be processed in places like the liver or you know, packaged up or moved to places and organs and systems and tissues that need them. The lymphatic system is uh, very much interrelated with the cardiovascular system. It is a movement of fluid as well, like the cardiovascular system. But in this case, it's kind of like a cleanup crew. So we'll talk about, uh, at a much later date, uh, things like inflammation and edema uh, and um, how fluid moves through the body. But basically what the lymphatic system does is it takes um, fluid that's permeated kind of between, through, and around the tissues and it sucks it up, it cleans it. Uh, so if there's debris or bacteria or stuff, it'll clean that all out. And then it'll reintroduce that fluid back into the cardiovascular system. So we're efficient and we recycle it and reuse it uh, to make new blood again. Respiratory system, okay, fairly straightforward-ish. Uh, it does two basic jobs. It brings oxygen in and it makes you get rid of carbon dioxide and water the waste products. So um, very, very, very important functions, uh, interrelated to a whole bunch of other um, control systems, and, and we'll get to that, of course. Uh, urinary system. <laughs> uh, what is, anybody want to tell me what the urinary system does? It, it makes you pee, yeah. It cleans your blood. That's, that's, that's the important starting point, right? So your kidneys basically act as big filters. Um, your kidneys are, uh, there's an enormous amount of blood flow to your kidneys all throughout the day, every day. And they're constantly filtering your blood and cleaning it and concentrating stuff that we don't want to keep inside the body into a waste that's going to be excreted from the body called urine. Okay, so um, filters is a, is a good way to, uh, to think about that. Digestive, that's how we get our our nutrients and energy sources and all our macronutrients, the things we need lots of, like carbs and fats and protein, uh, and micronutrients, things we need a little bit of, like nutrients and minerals and vitamins. Um, that's how we get that all in, right? So we eat and drink those things. Uh, we process it through what is basically this big long tube that travels kind of back and forth throughout the abdomen, has all sorts of specialized structures. We add enzymes in, we add acid in, we mix things up, we break things down, we basically make it so that we can, uh, our food is turned into something that we can actually absorb 
And so we take the parts out of it that we need into the blood to be travel elsewhere in the body so that we can use it. And then everything else that we don't need, the leftovers, out the other end, right? Uh, and then we have our male and female reproductive. Of course, very different between the two, uh, the two sexes. Uh, but that is how our, our species perpetuates, right? That's how we, how, that's how we, uh, we move on, make new organisms. So we'll get to all these, uh, some in this, in this class this semester, some in the other class next semester in a lot more detail, but that's a really, really basic, broad overview. Um, does anybody have any questions so far? I know it's all really broad stuff. Questions? Already has been. Yep. So, so all the the lecture notes up to unit six are on Blackboard under weekly learning, right here. So you can download all those, and I'll post the rest of those uh, in the next couple of weeks. All right. Okay. Let's take a break uh, from now until ten after. Hey. Uh, of course, there's also stuff in the back. There's a lot of overlap here because the ones that you've seen already, um, actually all of these we've seen already with the exception of uh, these ones, occipital means the back of the head, auricular means ear. This is still the thoracic region between the neck and the abdomen. Vertebral region means the spine. Lumbar region means the low back. Sacral is the sacrum. Gluteal is buttock and perineal means uh, basically in between the legs. Okay, um, the rest of those are overlapped from the from the previous slides. You're just seeing it from a different angle. Okay, take some time, review. Uh, if it's overwhelming all at once, then take a break. Go back at it later. But you have to know these terms. This is anatomical stuff. Okay, there are sometimes it's just memorization, and this is one of those times. All right, <laughs> now inside the body, um, there uh, we have a whole bunch of organs. Uh, that need to be uh, um, protected and supported and, and located in particular spots. So we are going to basically have them anchored within particular cavities, uh, and then we're going to give these things, uh, the cavities and the stuff that supports it, their own uh, names. Um, let's, so if you, if you open up the body and look at the, the I'm going to call it hollow spaces. They're not hollow. If you were to take the organs out, they'd be hollow. But the hollow spaces inside, inside we have uh, a posterior cavity and a ventral cavity. So ventral, that's a new word, right? Okay, let me give you um, synonyms here. Okay. Ventral is the same thing as anterior. Dorsal is the same thing as posterior. Right? So ventral means front or back? Front, anterior. Dorsal means back. Good. Okay. All right. So uh, let's look at the posterior aspect. All of the posterior aspect is entirely encased in bone, which should tell you some things. If something is wrapped up and encased in bone, it's probably delicate. Right? It needs to be protected by a bony structure, a bony <coughs> cage. All right. Um, it's going to be divided into the cranium, right? the cranial cavity, which is what holds the brain, and the vertebral column, which holds the spinal cord. Both of those are structures of the nervous system, and they are very, very delicate. So it makes sense. They need that protection. I've skipped ahead a couple of slides. This part right here 
is the posterior aspect, right? So you have the cranial cavity inside the skull where the brain lives and the vertebral canal where the spinal cord lives inside the spine. And when we do spinal anatomy later on, you'll see that it's one of its major jobs is basically encasing the spinal cord, protecting it. Okay? The other cavity, right, the front one is the ventral cavity. It's much, much bigger. It's anterior, ventral, it's in the front. Um, and it does not wrap up all its organs in bone, okay, with the exception of, you know, the rib cage to some degree. Uh, but when we break down the ventral cavity uh, into its parts, that leaves us with uh, the thoracic cavity and the abdominal pelvic cavity. So the thoracic cavity is superior to the abdominal pelvic cavity. It's above it, which makes sense. Okay, so this stuff here, if you follow my mouse, this is all the ventral cavity. Up here is the thoracic region. Okay, what's, what lives in the thoracic cavity? Heart and lungs. Heart and lungs, okay? And then in the abdominal pelvic cavity, most of the rest of your organs. Just about everything else, okay? Um, the dividing line that, di that divides uh, the thoracic cavity from the abdominal cavity is the diaphragm. Okay, so the diaphragm is, is a big kind of parachute dome-shaped muscle that sits here at the bottom of the ribs and, and kind of domes upward. When you breathe in, it flattens out to, to get some more volume in the lungs. But basically, that's your dividing line between thoracic above and abdominal below. Now, technically, the abdominal cavity and the pelvic cavity are slightly different regions, but there is no real dividing structure that separates them, so it's often just called the abdominal pelvic cavity. There's nothing that separates them. Um, if you were to draw an imaginary line at the top of the pelvis here, okay, everything below is the pelvic cavity, sits in the pelvis, and everything above up to the diaphragm is the abdominal cavity. But really, it's all hollow, it, hollow, empty and, and, uh, um, and continuous, and so abdominal pelvic is fine. Okay? Um, if you look at it from the front, all right, so we're going to see that those divisions as well. <laughs> you can also see that within those divisions you have some subdivisions. Uh, so there are special places for each one of the lungs and the heart and some other stuff in the, th in the thorax. We're going to see what exactly that means uh, in, in two seconds. Okay? So within some of these cavities, okay, there's going to be these subdivisions. And the subdivision mean that there is literally a membrane that wraps something up uh, um, by itself and separates it from other tissue and other organs. Okay? So the most common example of this is what we call a serous membrane. Um, now, serous, <coughs> the word serous, means a clear, watery fluid. So basically, a serous membrane is always going to be a double-layered membrane. So it's got one layer and another layer stuck together with a very thin layer of watery fluid between them. Okay? Now sometimes we'll refer to that space in between the two layers as a cavity. It's not really a cavity per se, uh, as in you think of cavity, you think of an open space. It's a cavity, but it's really more of a potential space. It could be space if those layers peeled apart. And that can happen, but that's later for patho. Okay? Uh, but for now, under normal circumstances, there's a tiny amount of fluid in there, uh, and we call it a, a, a potential space. All right? So there are a few examples of these double-layered serous protective membranes in the body. They each have their own name, but all of them have these common themes to them. 
the inner layer, the, the, the layer that touches the organ, that wraps around the outside of the organ, or the viscera, is called the visceral layer. And the outer layer is always called the parietal layer. And that is similar for every single double-layered serous membrane that you have. Now, if this is a difficult visual, I, um, I kind of understand at first, but we ha what you have to understand is that uh, these double-layered serous membranes <laughs> are not, you have a, a membrane and a membrane, but where, what happens at the end? They're not actually separate membranes. They're actually one structure folded in on itself. So the visual that sometimes helps is this. So if you can imagine uh, shoving your fist into a partially inflated balloon, okay? So your fist is the organ, and you're going to stick it inside the balloon, and it's going to fold back on itself and envelop the fist. So the fist is the organ. The layer that is directly touching the fist is the inner layer of the serous membrane. So that is the visceral layer, good. And then as the, the balloon kind of folds back, you now have an outer layer. And that outer layer is going to be the parietal layer, exactly. So the visual of this, I mean, the airspace in the balloon is a little bit dramatic. It's big, much, I mean, there's, you wouldn't get that kind of space actually created in one of our uh, serious membranes, but the visual helps make sense. So with any one of these examples, it's basically like you're shoving an organ into this folded back on itself uh, membrane. Okay, so we have some spe specific examples of these membranes in the uh, in the thoracic and abdominal pelvic cavities. <coughs> the first is uh, the mediastinum. Okay, so the mediastinum is uh, in the thoracic cavity. That is right here. Okay, so that is the yellow and the blue parts. It's basically the part in the thorax in between the two lungs, right dead center. Okay, and to make it even more confusing, there is actually a second, uh, a second one inside that mediastinum that envelops the heart. Okay, it's called the pericardium. Para, around, cardium, heart. Okay, so it has its own double-layered membrane with actually an extra layer too, but that's for another day. Okay. <laughs> yep, that's where the heart is, right there. Some people think it's on the left side. It is not. It is dead center, slightly biased towards the left. Okay. <clears throat> Next, we, oh, there's the pericardium right there. Okay, so again, pericardium around the heart. Uh, same as the other layers. There's the inner layer, the visceral layer. The outer layer is the parietal layer. In between, you have a little bit of serous, so watery fluid. Uh, that creates that pericardial cavity or pericardial space. Again, cavity is a, is a misnomer. Okay? It's not really empty space. It's just a little space for that fluid uh, between the two layers. Cool? All right. The next big obvious ones are the pleura. Okay? There are two pleura. The pleura are the, uh, are the membranes that envelop each of the lungs. So you have one around the left lung and one around the right lung. Okay, exact same orientation as the other vis or as the other serous membranes. Okay, you have a visceral layer that attaches to the outside of the lung. You have a parietal layer that attaches to the inside of the rib cage and the top of the diaphragm. So we're not going to get into the specifics of this today, but the relationship between how this is attached to both the lung and the rib cage and diaphragm is how breathing works. 
Okay, so you pull on your rib cage and diaphragm, and it pulls on the lungs through these membranes. And by changing the size and shape of the lungs, that helps move air in and out of the, of the body. Okay, very good. <clears throat> okay, so again, here you're seeing the pericardium within the mediastinum. You see your pleura, one around each lung. And then uh, the last little bit is the abdominal pelvic stuff. So again, like I said, abdominal pelvic, they're technically one big space, but you can draw a line at the top of the pelvis to make above the abdominal cavity and below the pelvic cavity. In that, we're gonna have basically all the rest of our organs. So all the digestive organs, the kidneys, the, um, the ureters, which leads from the kidneys down to the bladder. We're gonna have chunks of um, all the reproductive stuff. All the rest of the internal organs are gonna be within that space. Now, in that space, we have one more double-layered membrane. Admittedly, this is probably the trickiest one to visualize. It's called the peritoneum. Okay, so the starting point is it's, the, it's very, very, very similar to all the other membranes we just talked about, like the pericardium, like the pleura. It's, uh, it's a, a um, you've taken the organs and you've shoved them into this bag that folds back on itself, so you have two layers, the visceral layer inside and the parietal layer outside. The complication is that <coughs> there's a lot of stuff going on in the abdomen and the peritoneum doesn't envelop all of it. Okay, so most of it, but not all of it. But let's just keep things simple for now and say that the bulk of the abdominal organs are protected and surrounded by this peritoneum. Okay? Well, that was a bunch of things all at once. Are there any questions about the, the double-layered serous membranes, the inner and outer layer, what's between them, what they envelop, anything like that? It's not going to get slower. <laughs> okay. All right. Here we go. <laughs> I understand there's a lot of memorization up front. It is what it is. All right. So let's make it more complicated. <laughs> let's do it. So uh, you're going to take the abdomen, and you can arbitrarily divide the abdomen into... Uh, say you have like a number sign kind of shape, you can divide it into nine regions, okay? So nine regions, um, let's start straight down the middle, okay? So these three regions down the middle. That square in the middle here, okay, is the umbilical region. Umbilical named for the umbilicus, that's the belly button, okay? So you're gonna f if you're looking at surface anatomy, you'd find your belly button right in that umbilical region there. Of course, if you take off the skin and look deeper, there's going to be all sorts of organs, uh, um, intestine, intestinal stuff in that umbilical region as well. We'll get into more of that later. Um, above that umbilical region, okay, is the epigastric region. So the top line that, that, that stops at the top of this epigastric region is that diaphragm again. That's that dotted line right here, okay, that little dome shape. So the top middle is the epigastric region. Epi means above, right? Gastric means stomach, okay? Uh, below the umbilical region is the hypogastric region. Hypo means below. Gastric means stomach. It gets a little confusing because most of the stomach is actually up in the epigastric region, but let's not go there yet. 
Um, so if we go from the umbilical region straight out to the sides, what do you, what do, what do you call it? What's the reference uh, term for when you go from the midline outward? Lateral. Good. So more lateral. So lateral to the umbilical region, you have two lumbar regions. Right? The left lumbar and the right lumbar region. Remember that we're looking at somebody else's body, so their left is on your right and vice versa. Right? Okay. <clears throat> below those, what's the term for below? Inferior. Inferior, good. Inferior to the lumbar regions down in the pelvis and lateral to the hypogastric regions, you have the iliac regions. Okay, iliac referring to pelvis. So you have the left and right iliac regions basically talking about sitting just inside the pelvis here, with the pelvic floor or the bottom of the pelvis being basically the dividing line for that. And then above the lumbar regions, okay, what's the term for above? Superior. Superior. And what in relation to the epigastric? So superior to the lumbar region and lateral to the epigastric region, you have the left and right hypochondriac regions. Okay, So small little spaces, basically just from there up to the border of the diaphragm. Okay, Again, this stuff here is just rote memorization. It's terms you will come, uh, you'll come into contact with over and over and over. The first time it is overwhelming, but work through it slowly and repeatedly, and it will become second nature very, very shortly. Okay? I promise. I do. Okay? Now, we can make it simpler if we want, and we can, instead of dividing the abdomen into nine regions, uh, we can divide it into four. For nursing, you need to know both. Okay? Because when you learn about what lives in there, what organs are in there, and when you're doing physical exam, you're poking around, you're listening, you're trying to find out what's going on, where is the person's pain? Well, you have to be able to describe it. Right? You need to be able to use the terminology to describe in the notes and verbally where that person's pain is or whatever is. Okay? So you have to, have to, have to know this stuff. <clears throat> this one is super easy. Okay? Instead of a nine, we'll do it into quadrants. Okay? So a little more broad. Uh, again, it's using the umbilicus, the belly button, as the center point. You draw um, a mid-sagittal line straight up, right? And you draw a transverse line across. You have upper and lower, left and right. So you have a left upper. Remember, it's his left upper, not, uh, not your left upper. So left upper all the way up to the diaphragm, right upper up to the diaphragm, right lower into the pelvis, left lower into the pelvis. That one's easier, right? Got to learn both. Okay. <clears throat> now, I used this term earlier, uh, homeostasis. Okay, um, and let's let's dig into it uh, a little bit more. Okay, so homeostasis is uh, how an organism, like a human or like any other complex multicellular organism, interacts with its environment, which is always changing, and maintains some consistency within itself. Okay, so our body likes to have all of its variables just so. It likes to have them where it wants them. And again, that means concentrations and temperatures and pressures and all sorts of things all the time, all at once. Um, without without too, many, too much specifics, um, a lot of these variables, we regulate them tightly because that is where our body functions optimally. 
And, and often, if we get outside of what is an optimal range, a lot of the cells and tissues and chemical reactions that we need to occur don't happen properly. They don't occur the way they should, and things start breaking down. We start getting disease when we get outside of, of uh, maintained homeostasis. Okay? Things can go very, very, very wrong very quickly if your blood pH changes by a small amount. Okay? If, you're, if your body temperature changes by a few degrees, if your blood concentration of sugar goes up or down, things change really, really rapidly. All those and much, much more all get tightly regulated by homeostatic mechanisms. So <laughs> what's involved? Well, broadly, every homeostatic system is going to involve these components. Okay? In order to take a variable that you want to control and keep it there, you need to know when it changes. So you need to have receptors that will detect a stimulus. Okay? So these could be many, many different things. And when we get to the nervous system, we'll learn about various different kinds of receptors. But you have chemoreceptors that detect chemical concentrations of every chemical you can imagine. Um, sodium and potassium and calcium and hydrogen and glucose and all those things. Okay? Um, you have baroreceptors that detect what does a barometer detect? Pressure. Pressure. Right? So baroreceptors, a barometer detects pressure. Uh, you'll have thermoreceptors that detect temperature. Okay? All sorts of, um, of, of specialized receptors that are constantly monitoring all these different variables within the body. Now, they're monitoring these variables, and they're looking for a stimulus. And that stimulus is going to be specific for whatever it is that they're watching. So a chemoreceptor is going to be watching for changes in a chemical concentration. A baroreceptor is going to be wa watching for uh, changes in pressure, blood pressure, for example, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? When the receptor detects that particular stimulus, right, whether it's high, low, or right where it's supposed to be, it's sending that signal back to somewhere else. Okay? The receptor doesn't do anything consciously, it just picks up information and it sends it to a control center, which nine times out of, the, out of ten is going to be the brain. Okay? It can also involve the endocrine system too. We said there's two messenger systems in the body, nervous with electrical signals and endocrine with chemical signals, <coughs> so it can involve that as well. But many, many, many cases the control center is going to be the brain. And the control center does is it takes the information that comes in from the receptor and it decides what to do about it. So let's say uh, information comes in and, uh, and it's telling your brain that um, the pH of your blood is too low. Okay, so what it's really detecting is that there's too much hydrogen. That we'll talk about that next week in the most boring class of the semester, the chemistry class. My apologies in advance. We'll get through it. All right. <clears throat> but that information is going to get sent to the brain and the brain is going to decide what to do about it. It's going to send information back out through an effector or to an effector. It's going to control and make that effector do something to change that variable and bring it back to where you want to bring it. So the, in that case, our body uses organs like the lungs and the kidneys to manipulate the pH of the blood to bring it back to where we want it. The same thing would occur just in different uh, processes if you're trying to manipulate temperature or blood pressure or concentration of a chemical or whatever it is that you're trying to change. They're all different. We'll learn about each one of them individually. Okay? That broad idea makes sense. You take in the information from a receptor to a control center, 
send out signal back to the effector, which is going to make a change uh, in that variable and bring it preferably back to where you want it to. So what really what we're describing here uh, is what's called a negative feedback loop. Okay, so the function of a negative feedback loop uh, is basically this. What I was describing earlier is for every individual variable, pressure, temperature, concentration, whatever, you have a set point. So let's say this is what we want our concentration of blood glucose to be or whatever. And we're going to have uh, an acceptable range above and below and all that is you know, acceptable. Okay? We're going to have normal fluctuations up and down and up and down. But if we deviate too far, okay, the receptors will detect that. They will send that message to the control center. The control center will send a message to an effector, which is going to do something in the body to change that and bring it back towards the set point. Okay? And on and on and on we go. Now, the point of a negative feedback loop means that because these receptors are always detecting the current state of whatever that variable is, that say glucose concentration, okay? it's sending that signal to the, to the, uh, the control center. Control center is doing something to the body to try to bring it back. Let's say glucose is too high. Control center is going to send signals out uh, to other organs, like for example the pancreas, and try to do something to bring it back to where we want it to be. All this time, those same receptors which sent that signal of abnormal glucose in the first place are still detecting the glucose levels. Okay? So ultimately, once the glucose levels come back to where we want it, that signal is going to be sent to the brain as well, and it shuts this whole mechanism off. Okay? So a negative feedback loop basically means once that variation has been corrected, the cycle shuts off. Right? until a, a, a variation is detected again. Does that make sense? So it, it, its, it's goal is to shut itself off. Its goal is to correct the dysfunction so that it doesn't have to keep correcting the dysfunction. All right. Now, the vast, vast, vast majority of regulatory systems in the body operate through negative feedback loops in maintaining homeostasis. Vast majority. Okay? There are a small handful of systems that don't operate this way. All right? um, there are a small handful of examples that operate under what's called a positive feedback mechanism. So a negative feedback me mechanism basically means right, you get that stimulus, you correct it, and it shuts itself off. A positive feedback mechanism means that the stimulus is detected and it's reinforced in a way that you get more of that stimulus, and more, and more, and more, and more. And the handful of examples will probably make sense. Okay? Um, labor is a good one. Okay? So once a, a female initiates labor, right, what happens to the contractions? Right? They start somewhat milder and farther apart, and they get stronger and stronger and closer together and stronger and closer together. Because you don't want this thing to fluctuate. You don't want to yeah, have some and then not, and then some and then not. You basically want to get more and more and more and more and more with the end goal of accomplishing a singular task. Okay. Um, same thing with uh, clotting. Okay. Blood clotting is an interesting example where um, uh, once a clot is initiated, so a, a blood clot happens when there's tissue damage. So when you damage a tissue, uh, you physically cause damage, chemicals get released, and they signal other stuff to come to that area. 
through a process called chemotaxis. Don't write that down, it'll show up later. Um, it'll signal other chemicals to come to the area and clump together and make this clot, which is going to plug up this hole where the damage was. Okay? But the process of making a clot sends further chemicals out that make it snowball into a bigger and bigger and bigger clot until the job is done. Okay? You don't want a little clot, you want enough of a clot to do the job. Okay? Another interesting example is breastfeeding. Uh, so we have a visual here. <laughs> so um, it involves some hormones, which we'll learn about later, uh, but uh, we'll get the basics now. So say um, baby's hungry, right? So uh, baby suckles at the, at the nipple. Um, the, there are receptors that will detect that, okay? The stimulus to the nipple. Uh, you'll send that information to a particular part of the brain called the hypothalamus. All that we'll talk about later. Hypothalamus is directly connected to part of the endocrine system. It's going to called the pituitary gland. It's going to release a, a hormone called oxytocin. Oxytocin travels through the blood, goes to the breast, stimulates it to release milk. Breast milk is released. If baby's sucking at the nipple and milk comes out, what's baby going to do? Keep sucking. Keep sucking, right? Exactly. So it stimulates the perpetuation of this feedback loop. So uh, it, in this case, it's a little different because another organism is involved, but it's, it's, it serves an illustrative purpose. Okay? So those three are kind of the typical examples of positive feedback loops operating in the body. Just about everything else, temperature, pH, concentrations, all that stuff that we'll talk about at length later, uh, they're all regulated by negative feedback loops. So detect something's wrong, Fix it, job gets done, stop detecting it. Make sense? All right. <clears throat> okay, we're getting there. Uh, so, uh, maintenance of homeostasis is, is this dynamic, never-ending, ongoing process because those receptors are constantly monitoring uh, for variations in those particular, uh, those particular variables. Um, if that system does not work, if the regulatory system uh, a receptor, control center, effector cannot balance the, uh, um, the variable, bring it back to that set point or in the, in the acceptable range of where you want it, that's when uh, disease process occurs. So that's when something has gone wrong, okay? And we'll talk about a lot more of that in uh, patho classes, okay? So we learn how things work when they go right for now, and then we learn what happens when things go wrong, they go outside of normal ranges, and then it, how it creates particular signs and symptoms that the person um, uh, shows and feels and experiences that we classify as the signs and symptoms indicating a disease. And these specific ones for infections and, and degenerative stuff and all sorts of other diseases. Okay, some basic straightforward examples. Um, there are, all these you'll learn in other classes, okay, this is not important stuff to memorize for our class, it just serves a, a, an illustrative point. Um, there are normal ranges for body temperature, for blood glucose levels, for blood pressure levels. The thing to keep in mind, what I want you to remember, is that normal is, um, normal is, uh, is something that we, we've taken a large sample of people and defined, quote unquote, normal for most people, okay? There are definitely people that can fall uh, outside of what is our quote-unquote normal ranges for certain things and be perfectly healthy f as an individual, okay? Um, there are definitely exceptions, but normal, quote-unquote, uh, for most of these variables is going to catch 
the broad uh, uh, majority of, of a population for a lot of these. Okay, we'll use individual examples down the line when we need to. All right, um, <clears throat> a good example of, uh, of imbalance in homeostasis, we can talk really, really briefly about diabetes. Uh, you guys will learn about diabetes. By the time I get you in, uh, in patho, usually people say they've learned it about three times before that. Uh, so they do beat it to death, but it's important, okay? But it's a great example, okay? So diabetes is basically an imbalance of blood glucose. There are two major types of diabetes and a couple of subsets, but basically what we're talking about is, is a, um, a, a improper regulation of blood glucose. And there's a lot that goes on uh, in, in regulating glucose because there are hormones involved. Um, so let's, let's, uh, let's pick out really briefly just, just one type. Um, type 1 diabetes, okay? Does anybody know what the basic problem with type 1 diabetes is? Good. It doesn't produce its own insulin. Okay, so um, insulin is a hormone. Uh, it's produced in, which means it's produced in a gland, and then it travels through the blood and acts somewhere else in the body. Okay, does anybody know where insulin is made? Pancreas. Perfect. Okay, pancreas is a huge gland. Uh, it produces a whole bunch of different stuff um, for digestive function, but uh, insulin is one of the big ones for endocrine function. Okay, so insulin's basic job is uh, to take glucose from the blood and allow it to get into cells of the body. Okay, so in a lot in most situations, you can have all the glucose in the world in your blood, but if you don't have insulin present, it has no way of getting into the cells. Okay, so in a, someone who's a type one diabetic, okay, that is a big big problem. Okay, someone who has inability to endogenously within themselves make their own insulin has a complete inability to move glucose from the blood into the cells. So that's two very big problems. One is the cells are not getting the fuel they need. And two is you now accumulate a dangerously high level of glucose in the blood. Okay, so how do you, how do you manage? Uh, so first of all, can you cure type one diabetes? Not as of right now, okay? Can you manage type one diabetes? Yes. Of course. How do you do that? You administer exogenous, right, from outside the body, insulin. And, the, and you administer it what's called periprandially, around mealtime. So around the time you eat, right, shortly before, shortly after, in between, you're around that window, you inject yourself with uh, or you have a pump that releases a specific amount of insulin into your blood, and now you have that insulin temporarily, enough that it's gonna be able to shuttle the glucose from your bloodstream into the cells and manage the current temporary increase in blood glucose that you're gonna get from eating that meal. But you have to keep doing it all the time around, you know, and plan around times when you eat and exercise and things like that. So it gets tricky, but it's very, very manageable. Okay, so that's type one diabetes. For an average, so for sort of human that does not have diabetes, blood glucose still has to be regulated, okay? But in this case, we're talking about uh, a situation where the, uh, we have receptors that detect current levels of glucose and release insulin in response. So your body will release insulin in response to 
elevated glucose levels or when you exercise or all different situations as it is supposed to because it's supposed to be able to release it as necessary until the blood glucose levels come back to a level where they are supposed to be and then we shut off that negative feedback loop. Okay? That's a really brief, brief, brief overview of that. You will talk about diabetes a bunch more later. <coughs> okay. So, back to something I, I, I briefly mentioned earlier, um, the relationship of the scientific method back to medicine. Okay, so in developing a, a diagnosis. So if you're trying to get uh, a label for a particular disorder that somebody has, you say, what is wrong with this person? What are we going to call it? Okay, well, you follow the steps of the scientific method more or less, right? You're going to gather information, right? So you're going to ask the person about their history. You're going to take some vital signs. You're going to do some kind of physical exam. Um, you're going to ask some questions. Um, you're going to ask them things about, you know, what they feel, what they've experienced, etc. You take all that information and you're going to combine it with your knowledge that you're starting to build right now, all right? And you're going to say, what does this mean? Okay, if I take all this information, in this context, what does it mean and what is my idea of what it probably is as far as a diagnosis? You have an initial or differential diagnosis. If you don't have enough information to be rock solid 100%, know for sure what the problem is, you've now narrowed the list down and you can gather more information. So you can do tests, you can do blood tests, you can do uh, imaging, you can gather more information as necessary to further kind of suss out uh, and, and rule out or rule in some of the potential possibilities. Because a lot of different disorders will have a lot of overlapping signs and symptoms, right? How many, how many infections are there out there that can cause fever? Lots, right? Thousands, millions, who knows, okay? Right, they all cause some kind of fever. So, you know, there are some things that are common and some things that make individual diseases distinct and you use those uniquenesses to kind of uh, to, to narrow down your your diagnosis okay uh, and then you're essentially going to uh, either confirm or reject what your initial idea was uh, and then you have your definitive diagnosis that makes it sound a lot more simple than it often is uh, but that's the general idea of what you're trying to do okay uh, what else um, Okay, um, so briefly, briefly, you'll have an entire class later on about, um, about pharmacology down the line, um, but there are things that can be introduced to the body uh, that will alter the normal homeostatic controls. So all drugs work this way in some form or another. It's an outside source of something that's going to manipulate one of your body systems or add something to it or change something externally. That's why you're administering it. So let's use the example of, a, of an SSRI. Um, uh, does anybody know what SSRI stands for? It's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. That's a mouthful. Okay. So serotonin is uh, a hormone. It's found in the brain, uh, and this is doing an injustice to what depression really is. Because if we're being truthful about it, we don't fully understand it, and it's definitely not as simple as low levels of serotonin. But for the illustration, let's pretend that it is. Okay? Let's pretend that depression is due to low levels of serotonin in the brain. In some cases it is, in some cases it's more, much more complicated. So you have low levels of serotonin in the brain. Okay? Person's depressed. So you administer an SSRI. Okay? So what an SSRI does 
<coughs> is it does what it names suggests. It's, it's a, a serotonin <coughs> reuptake inhibitor. So basically, <coughs> normally, after serotonin is released in the brain, it doesn't stay there forever. It gets reuptaken. So it gets taken back up into cells and broken down for parts and recycled, and then it'll be used again. So if you have a drug that blocks the reuptake of serotonin, it means it doesn't get sucked up, it doesn't get broken down, so it stays in the system. Right? So it stays present longer than it otherwise would. So thereby you are artificially keeping the serotonin levels higher than they would normally be. And so in theory, if we make the assumption that low serotonin equals depression, Therefore, you're, you're keeping serotonin present longer, so serotonin goes up, so you manage depression. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're externally manipulating uh, systems in order to achieve a particular goal. Now, I'll go on record as saying it's vastly more complicated than that as it relates to depression, but let's pretend that it's simple for now. Okay, last little bits. And then for probably the only time this semester, you're getting out early, okay? <laughs> Don't get used to it. <laughs> okay, let's talk about some imaging. We kind of referred to this uh, earlier. So you're going to learn about some of these in more detail later on, but let's get the basics. Um, radiography. What is, what is radiography? X-ray, okay? So <laughs> what an X-ray is, basically, is X-ray is, um, is a form of radiation. It's ionizing radiation, which means that it is in theory, potentially harmful, right? It, it can cause chemical changes to DNA, okay? So with enough radiation, it can, you, I mean, every time you get exposed to certain doses of radiation, you're rolling the, the dice. You're rolling the dice on, is this the time that it creates a mutation that could be potentially harmful? The vast, vast, vast majority of times, you're totally fine. Our body has built-in mechanisms to find these changes, these mutations, and and, uh, and destroy them or fix them before you ever would ever even notice it. But by definition, that radiation it could potentially cause a mutation that could, in theory, be harmful. But with x-ray, it's such a low level uh, that, uh, that, that the risk is very, very low. That being said, um, the rules, uh, we don't just send people for x-rays willy-nilly, right? And just say, ah, let's go x-ray something for the hell of it, because there is that built-in inherent risk. And so when you send somebody for um, uh, imaging that involves radiation, you follow the principle of ALARA. As low as reasonably achievable. Right? So the lowest level of radiation exposure that is reasonably achievable while still getting the job done, right? while still getting you the information that you need. Does that make sense? OK, so what does x-ray do? Well, this, um, wh what do you see on x-ray? You see uh, things that are dense, OK? So x-rays, the traditional x-rays, it was actually passed um, from, uh, from the machine through the person who's standing next to what was called the bucky. Uh, and basically, there was actually film inside of it. And <laughs> the film would have to be essentially developed and viewed. And you would see changes in density. So certain things in the body are more dense than others. And that image right there is probably giving you a good idea of what x-ray is good at seeing, things that are dense like bone. Okay? So even here you can see differing densities of bone. So the denser something is when you expose it to x-ray, uh, the more radiopaque 
opaque to uh, X-ray radiation it is, which means it looks whiter. Okay, so the whitest things on an X-ray are the densest from this angle, from this view. Okay, so here you can even see uh, differences in you know densities of different parts of the skull, densities in different parts of the spine. See, this person has a crown. Okay, um, so you can pick up anything that's dense, artificial, metal, things like that will show up as bright white. Uh, um, obvious structures on x-ray. If you want to Google you know, uh, ER room x-rays, I'm sure you can see all sorts of things that people have found a way to uh, insert into their bodies and get stuck. All right? And you can guess what they are. It's a fun game. All right? <laughs> but not for right now. The, the point is, um, <laughs> under normal circumstances, you cannot see most soft tissues on x-ray. So that means you can't see muscle, ligament, tendon, uh, lungs, organs, etc. Okay, unless they are really dense for some reason. Um, you can see some things like tumors because tumors are more dense tissue than they're supposed to be um, in certain circumstances, but you can't necessarily rely on it. So x-ray can be very, very, very useful for a lot of reasons, um, but, uh, um, but it depends on what you're looking for. Right? You have to make selections uh, for certain imaging modalities intelligently based on what it is that you're looking for. So here, if we're looking for you know, something to do with the bones, if you're looking uh, you know, for a fracture, for example, x-ray is a great place to start because okay? you get good information about the bone. If you're looking at a sprain or a strain or something like that, you are never, ever, ever going to see it here. It just doesn't work that way. Okay? Um, so there's lots of different uses for x-ray. We'll, we'll uh, see a bunch more down the line. CT, okay, commuted, uh, computed tomography, also called uh, CAT, computed axial tomography. It's the same thing, okay? A CAT scan or a CT scan, does it involve radiation? It does. A CT scanner is basically um, a whole bunch of x-rays in a spiral shape. So basically a CT scanner, here, let's, oops, let's do this. The CT scanner looks like this. So you basically, oh, you get the idea. You lie on a bed, okay? And there's this big loop-shaped uh, thing, which is where the x-ray machine is. And as you pass through the loop, the x-ray machine rides around in a circle. So basically you get this spiral-shaped uh, multiple x-rays all in a row as you're passing through it. So what you do is you take those and you digitally reconstruct them so it gives you now a 3D image. Okay, so very, very, very useful for a lot of different things. Um, but uh, again, there is inherent risk because that is like getting a whole bunch of x-rays, okay? So, so I'll get to you in two seconds. It's, uh, it's, it's very useful. Uh, if you want to look at complex fractures, you want to look at certain tumors, um, very, very useful. Um, if you, you can use it for a lot of different things. You can introduce contrast agents so something goes into the blood and it, and it's, uh, it, or into joints, and it gives you even better information because you get these contrasting uh, um, densities. It can be super, super, super powerful and useful. It's also, as far as imaging modalities go, really quick. So a CT scan is, uh, is pretty rapid. Um, 
So it's got a lot of uses. But again, remember that there is inherent risk. There is, it is radiation. So it's one of those things you don't do it just because. So I'm just feeling like CT today. It's not something that you do. Okay, question. Do you have a question about the CT? I love the contrast, sorry. But um, so would it then, if that was making it more dense, that you're able to see it more, the contrast? Is that uh, no, so so this this would be a CT without contrast. Like this is what a CT scan normally looks like. Sorry, I mean when you said you would use the contrast to be able to see. So if you use a CT scan with, it depends on what you're doing. But let's say you introduce a contrast agent into the blood by IV. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's traveling through the blood, uh, and basically um, because you know what it's composed of. Uh, and, and what that's going to look like on a CT scan, you can essentially digitally remove stuff around it and get really cool 3D images of vasculature and stuff like that. So it can be really super powerful. Okay, uh, you're probably all familiar in some capacity with MRI. Okay, magnetic resonance imaging. Uh, does that involve radiation? It does not. No radiation in MRI. Okay, it has some drawbacks. It's much slower than CT. It takes a lot longer to do. It's a lot more claustrophobic than CT because you have to be in really close and tight. I'm going to do it a disservice because it's more complex than this, but basically what an MRI does is it uses big powerful magnets to change the spin of atoms within the body. So they respond to magnets and so basically when you induce a magnetic uh, field and then release it, they will essentially spin. It's complicated, but they'll spin and they'll let off uh, basically a signal. And that signal can be detected by the machine uh, and essentially recomposed um, because um, you're what it ends up giving you is information about the water and fat composition of different parts of the body. Okay, and so what you end up getting, because water is everywhere, is you end up getting various densities and various amounts in different places, and what we end up getting is a really cool, really um, uh, detailed view inside the body. So if you want to look at soft tissues, if you want to look at brain, if you want to look at um, muscle, tendon, ligament, any musculoskeletal injury, that's what you want. Okay, and MRI will give you, is our gold standard right now for uh, for soft tissue visualization. Okay. Uh, sonography, right? Ultrasound. Ultrasound is used for all sorts of different things. Basically, the basics of it are you're bouncing sound waves uh, into the body that come back to the receiver. Uh, it measures the distance of how far the sound, how deep the sound waves went, and that gives you an image. And some of the sonography techniques have gotten pretty cool, and you can get really, really cool, detailed images of what's going on beneath the surface. Um, it's uh, relatively cheap. There's no radiation. It's simple-ish um, as far as imaging goes, uh, accessible-ish, um, depending on where you live. Um, and, uh, and it can be a good way to visualize some things in, for example, hollow spots like the abdomen. There's also cool usages for looking at the heart with it or looking at blood vessels with it and blood flow, looking for clots, and you're looking at babies and all sorts of things that it can do to look at um, 3D structures, or at least uh, structures inside. Okay, and there's this, uh, some other variations of imaging. Um, angiography, okay, 
and geography. Graphi graphy is you're, you're, you're imaging something. Angio means blood vessels. So there's a bunch of different kinds of angiography and angiogram. Um, well, basically what you're looking at is you insert a catheter into a blood vessel. You release a contrast agent, something that's going to be um, opaque, white, on x-ray. And you take some x-rays as that contrast agent is passing through the blood vessels, and you can image the blood vessels. And so normally blood vessels you will not be able to see on x-ray at all. But if you fill them up with a contrast agent, you can see very clear outlines and contours of, uh, of the, what the vessels look like. Super commonly used when you're looking at things like the heart. Right? So you basically go in through an artery backwards through the aorta and you release a contrast agent into the coronary arteries uh, that travel around and supply the heart. And you can see, um, you can't see a blockage. You can't see a clot or, or a... Uh, um, uh, or an atheroma of fatty plaque, but what you can see is the contours. So see this, these kind of straight but curvy lines that show you the, the walls of the arteries, right? So if this is a normal artery, and there's a fatty plaque that's occupying space here, what it'll look like on angiography is this. Because remember, you can only see where the contrast goes, not what's stopping it. Okay, so what you would see is a narrowing of that vessel. You can imply that there's something there that's narrowed it, but you can't actually see it per se. That makes sense? Okay, good. And lastly, for us for today, uh, PET scan. Positron emission tomography, does that involve radiation? It does, okay? Uh, PET scan basically uses, um, you use a radioactive isotope of something. It's often glucose. So you have a radioactive form of glucose uh, that it emits low-level radiation, and you inject it into the person, usually intravenously, and you give it some time to travel throughout the body. And glucose will go where in the body? Everywhere. But glucose will especially be soaked up by what parts of the body? Parts of the body that are highly metabolically active, that need lots of energy. Okay, yeah, so cells will use glucose preferentially. But what about parts of the body that are super highly metabolic, right? Dividing really rapidly, growing really fast, needing lots of energy, like a tumor. Okay, so tumors are glucose hungry. And so you can, for example, see areas as the, as the radioactive glucose travels to those areas and concentrates in them. Uh, it's emitting this radiation that gets picked up by what's called a gamma camera, and you can tell where it's coming from. Uh, and you can combine this with other studies as well, but it's not make it complicated. And you can tell what parts are particularly metabolically active or not. Okay. Tumor is a great, a great example of what you, things you can look at, but there are all sorts of non-pathological examples or non-tumor examples as well. Okay? So, radiation, radiation, no radiation. No radiation, radiation, radiation. Make sense? Perfect. That's all. Okay? So, 
If, uh, if you have any questions about today's material, uh, email me or stay after class. I, I, I'll stay. We'll have some time. Uh, um, otherwise, I will see you all next week. I'll put it up uh, tonight.